0: Studies for the next several messages. God, I pray you would help us to be receptive. Help us to apply what we learn to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we remain standing? If you don't mind. (laughs) Thank you. I'd like to read uh, Psalm 127 and 128 again. And I just thought it would be appropriate to stand for that. So Psalm 127 and 128. Man, up, reading this at the beginning of the rest of the messages. I just think it's fitting for uh, this topic of the home. 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo... Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. 128, blessed is every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be. And it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. All right, you may be seated. Before I get into the message this evening, I just want to thank you all already for the way you've blessed us. We're enjoying uh, Dave and Mary's guest house a lot. Very comfortable there. And uh, also, the ladies have been bringing some very good food things, uh, some fresh bread, and various other things. And uh, we feel very, we're treated very well. feel blessed and even a little spoiled by what, how you're, you're uh, treating us there. So thank you for that. We're enjoying that a lot. I will warn you, though, we won't be eating all of your bread and other things you're bringing. There's more than we can eat. That does not mean we don't like it. We just can't eat all of that because we're eating other places as well. So thank you uh, for that. message this evening is, I've entitled it, Tender Warrior Fathers subtitle, The Role of a Godly Man. <clears throat> At home, I preached two messages instead of one. I'm just going to have one specifically for the men this evening, and I was planning uh, get in a get into my study this morning to just talk about fathers, but I felt a, a push to, uh, in my spirit, to, to hit the the thing of manhood in general, a bit more at the beginning of the message. And so it's a little bit of a blend of two sermons. And uh, I tried to condense it quite a bit so that it's not actually the material of two sermons. And I, I think I was successful. Um, but so what I want to do this evening is talk about tender warriors. What is a tender warrior? <clears throat> And then the magnitude of a father's influence. And thirdly, the attitude and heart of a father. I have a lot of material to cover this evening, and I, I think we'll be okay, but uh, just warning you that there's, there's going to be a lot to think about. And uh, I'm very excited about the message, but there's, uh, there's a lot here. One thing I do want to say before we get into this message some of these things that I'll be sharing, especially about fathers, could be painful for you. A couple different ways. If you're a dad that has not been the dad you should be, and you know that, it may hurt. Also, if your dad has not been the dad that he should be, if you've had a painful experience with your dad, um, that might hurt as well. And that's not the intention this evening. The intention is to, to just lift up what, what a godly father should be. And again, I think I mentioned it last evening, we're not looking, or God is not looking for perfection. You, you can look at the Bible and see a lot of stories of amazing people that came from dysfunctional homes. So, the fact is that what you as parents are is not the only determining factor as to how your children will turn out. They may turn out really, really well in spite of you. But I do think it's best to shoot for a high ideal. we on the same page with that? We still want to shoot for the best. And so, again, I'm not trying to discourage anybody or overwhelm you with with what fathers should be. Uh, You don't have to be perfect, but we need to be real. The destruction of manhood in our country is a stronghold today. Manhood in general is under assault, and there's a lot of things that are. I I get that. Uh, Marriage certainly is uh, probably the most obvious one just because of the homes that are splitting up. But the manhood in general is under serious attack. And so I I think some of the things we'll talk about this evening are important for us to think about because we become, over time, a bit influenced by the world that we live in, the culture that we live in. So let's get into it. What is a tender warrior? A, um, A tender warrior as... As described by Stu Weber in the book, and I'll, I'll be reading some things from this book this evening. By the way, I highly recommend this book for men, for all men of any age. Um, Stu Weber was a military man. That's where we would have to part ways with him. We don't believe we, we can do that as non-resistant um, loving your enemy's people. However, uh, he has some very, very solid things to say about manhood and even womanhood as far as that goes. And some of the principles that he brings from his experience in the military are actually very biblical. So as with all books, we need to read it, filter it through God's Word. But I do highly recommend it. I think it's very helpful, if you're, especially if you are a man who feels that you just really struggle with manhood. Maybe you're a passive man, or maybe you're too harsh. All of those things are addressed in this book really well. So uh, he says in the book that men, and I mentioned it last evening, but we're going to look at it more specifically. Men are to be a king, a warrior, a mentor, and a friend. Thinking of the, the thing of a man being a king, now, what I don't want you to do is take this and say, all right, I'm the king of my home. Now, everybody's going to listen to me. And I think it'll be very clear. It's been already, I suppose, that that is not how I think. That is not what we mean by a king. But um, it is a man who, who looks out for his home as a protector, as a provider. That's what a king does. At least that's what a good king does. Uh, he provides and protects his people. And, and uh, Genesis 1, there's a verse that talks a little bit about this concept. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let, us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So in a sense, we as, as mankind, and, a, and especially men, as a male, are to be the king of the earth that we live in. We're to have dominion. That's what God called us to. Secondly, <clears throat> I'm forgetting to put these up here. Men are to be a warrior. I mentioned last evening that men stand tallest when they are protecting something. Protecting uh, another human or, um, oh, what would it, I guess probably mainly that's, that, would, that would be the case. Some form of protecting another human uh, is, is when we as men rise to the occasion. There's something that, that just wells up in our chest and we're like, let's go. That's protect. You know what I mean? None of you men understand that? Raise your hands if you do. Yes, okay. All right. It's normal for boys to run into things and break stuff. Sorry, moms. It's what you're going to have to expect. One frustrated lady, this is a little story about that, one frustrated lady didn't want her little boy to conform to violent social expectations. In other words, she didn't like this thing of shooting and killing and stuff. She, she wanted him to play peaceful things. Imagine her chagrin when he came roaring out of the bedroom, squeezing off round after round, from the protruding leg of a teddy bear. Why did he do that? It's just part of who he is as, as an apprentice defender. And there's a lot of truth in that. And uh, so what, what we're not saying is that he should take that and, and go to the military and start shooting people. But we as men have built into us this thing of going out there and slaying the dragons, like making it happen. And, pushing something over and you know there's there's never a time we feel like more like a man when we're protecting or we're we're crushing something or you know take a jackhammer and just break up some concrete you know it's it's just that's a man thing to do. Thirdly men are to be mentors. God has and and, and women are certainly to be a teacher as well in the home with our children especially. And the Bible says older women to the younger. But, but I think men are especially gifted by God with what it takes to teach. Men are primarily to be the teachers. Men are to be the ones that, that know how stuff works. Now, there's exceptions to all these things. But generally speaking, if, if something comes, if you get something shipped to you and has a whole bunch of parts and needs to put, be put together... Do you take that box of things with the instructions and take it to one of your daughters? Not usually. Again, there's going to be exceptions. But usually men or boys are, they're the ones that are made to know how things work and to figure it out and so forth. And then to teach with that knowledge and so forth. So men are to be mentors, to be teachers. And then fourthly, they're there to be a friend. And... I want to read a short story in the book here that illustrates this. I'm going to be referring to this book especially several different times this evening because it paints the picture better than I can with my own words. There's nothing quite like a story to paint this picture. A a man as strong and tough as he might be and need to be. In spite of the grit that we're, we should have and, and, and all that, we also are to be a gentle friend. And this story illustrates that. This is Stu Weber writing about uh, an experience he had. I was a freshman in college. It was the winter on the Chicagoland campus of Wheaton College, late winter, cold, wind blowing, drifting snow, dead winter, a lot of my soul right then lifeless. A combination of things had thrown me into a tailspin. It was my first time away from home for an extended season, away from the girlfriend who would someday become my wife. I'd been disappointed by the winter sports season. I was fighting the fierce deadlines of academia, but worst of all, and for the first time in my rather sheltered life, I found myself reeling from the intellectual loss of my faith. Never in my life had I felt so disoriented, so alone. I couldn't sleep, couldn't study, couldn't speak with anyone. I could only walk, kick rocks, and commiserate with the silent, frozen landscape. That's what I was doing about midnight. I stumbled aimlessly across the deserted center of campus, lost in myself a terrible place to be. Then out of nowhere, I was touched by a tender warrior. Literally, without any inkling whatsoever that there was anyone else alive out there, I felt a hand on my shoulder. A voice fought its way through the wind. Could I be helpful to you? I looked up into the face of Dr. Hudson Armerding, the great-hearted president of Wheaton College. Apparently he had stayed late in the office that night. I still don't know how he found me. Had he been wandering in the darkness? Had he felt my pain and desolation from the second floor window? I don't know how he got there, but there he was at my side, a four-sided tower of strength. The king in him bore the weight of the college on his shoulders. The warrior in him fought powerfully through the blood-draining battles facing any college president of the 60s. The mentor in him taught us history in class, the scriptures in chapel, and life in general. And the friend in him reached out and drew in a hapless freshman wandering in a deep, months-long funk. He invited me home, to his home. We walked the distance together. There in the warmth of his living room, with everyone else in the house long asleep, he fixed two cups of tea. We talked and talked. He became my friend. He still is. One of a half dozen men who have marked my life. Hudson ormerding will always be a consummate king, warrior, mentor, friend to me. The four pillars of masculinity were balanced in Dr. or Like four strands of steel, they were woven together to form a cable that is the spine of masculinity. A good man is the balance of the four. A good warrior is also a sensitive lover, a tender warrior. A good friend is always a helpful mentor. The four are inseparable in a good man. In balance, they are every man's purpose, every woman's dream, and every child's hope abused. They are the curse of every man, woman, and child. There's something about a strong man who knows how to lead but who can also humble himself to being a friend. That is just incredible. And I'm sure all of you know someone like that. Someone who's a leader, someone who's a strong person, someone who who knows how to make things happen, but when you need someone's hand on your shoulder, they know how to do that as well. That is a man. We need so many more of them. So many more. he goes on to talk about characteristics of a a four-pillared man a man who is this warrior um, king, warrior, mentor, and friend And, and, and these are the four we'll look at these a bit a four-pillared man takes initiative. A man who is a king, a warrior, a mentor, and a friend. When, when you have a man that is all four of those, and we should be all four of those, that man takes initiative. In the book, there's a paragraph that says this. At his core, a man is an initiator, a piercer, one who penetrates moves forward, advances toward the horizon, leads. At the core of masculinity is initiation, the provision of direction, security, stability, and connection. And this is just another example, but you think, those of you that have been around a long time especially, You think about presidents of our country over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And immediately as you think of them, you know who led well, don't you? Some brought security and stability to to our country. Others brought a sense of uncertainty. That's just another example. It makes a big difference. Big difference the king and the warrior qualities of this four-pillared man are the most suspect today they're the ones that are being eroded massively you know today it's it's kind of this push for men to just be soft i don't know if it's a reaction to generations past where maybe they were too harsh too strong Expected too much of their children. I don't know where this comes from, but in today's world, it seems like the qualities of being a king and a warrior are being eroded a lot. <clears throat> Secondly, a four-pillared man has staying power. Staying power, and that, is, that means staying the course like keeping on, Perseverance. Yes, there's some women that are good at that as well, but men, especially God, has gifted us with what it takes to stay the course. Who's the one when you're struggling with teenagers in your home or maybe you're struggling in your leadership at church and maybe the wife is like, oh, we should, we should be gentle, and the man is like, yes, but we've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. The man has the longer range vision. And so God has given us the ability to, to stay the course. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I realize this call is to all believers, not just men. But we, especially as men, need to be the ones that when it comes to something that is a principle that cannot be moved, we are unmovable. We stand on that. A real man keeps his word. He doesn't quit, give up, shut up, or walk away. For so many men today, it's either my way or the highway. we talk about man having staying power we're not talking about that but we are talking about a man who's willing to stay the course a four-pillared man does have a tender side and and again I want to read you a very short story in here that illustrates this well and we don't usually think of the military as a place to look for examples of humility and tenderness but they are there And I was fascinated by this statement. Some of you, especially those of you who are, I don't know what age you need to be, but some of you don't remember this at all. General Norman Schwarzkopf, you remember him from uh, the Gulf War? It says this, General Norman Schwarzkopf, not long after the Gulf War and the dazzling victory over Iraq, the conquering commander of Desert Storm, appeared on national television in an interview with Barbara Walters. In the course of their conversation about the war, something touched this big man. We all watched with fascination as the eyes of this career soldier with four stars in his shoulder glazed over. Tears formed. Miss Walters, with well-practiced bluntness, said, why, General, aren't you afraid to cry? Storm and Norman replied without hesitation, No, Barbara. I'm afraid of a man who won't cry. We as men, as strong as we may be, as idealistic as we may be, we must also be tender. A a retired Navy SEAL commander has made the statement that humility is the greatest characteristic of a military leader. Again, you wouldn't think that that would be the case, but that is the case. Moving on to the second, that was uh, what is a tender warrior? Secondly, The magnitude of a father's influence. I'm going to talk here for a while about how much a father affects his children. Whether you're intentional or not, it just happens. Proverbs seventeen six says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Children are born with a natural desire and inclination to admire their dad. And boys do it in a unique way, but it also applies to the girls. That is, there's just something about fatherhood that our children, assuming everything is at least pretty much how it should be, they will, they will admire greatly their dad. There's something about the strength of a man and, and just the, uh, the safety and security of, of a good man. They deeply admire their dad. And for most children, it's only after repeated fits of anger, abuse, or rejection that they'll finally turn away. They'll withdraw their heart from their dad and they'll go somewhere else to find that. And so dads, be aware that you have an opportunity with your young children and many of you here have have young children. There's a lot of young children here. Many of these children that I see here in the first six or eight pews, well, even on back, they're at that age yet where they adore the ground that their dad walks on. Don't let them down. One man that I heard recently talking in a, in a sermon, actually he's a preacher. He shared a story about how that years ago when he was, I think, about six years old, he was helping his dad and, 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 a, and an older brother pull a pump out of a well. They were having trouble with their pump and they needed to pull, pull the, the pump out probably a couple hundred feet down and pull that whole pipe out and get the, the pump out and replace it. And so as they were pulling, and it was, it was a hard job in their case, it was, it was really hard work. If you're a plumber, you probably know all about this. But his job was as they would pull it a couple feet to grab the pipe and hold it till they got another grip and pull it again. And they had this thing, they had come up with it a long ways and were most of the way out when his grip slipped and it went crashing down into the bottom of the well again. And his dad, in that time of frustration, he said something to his son about, oh, you're never going to be able to do this right, something like that. Only this man is in his 40s. And only a number of years ago that he finally forgave his dad for that statement. It hurt. At six years old, again, we we adore our dads. There's nothing that we want to do more than please them. And if we can't do it, it hurts. And, And I'm sure some of you as men remember things that happened with your dad and and, and please, take, take it easy on your dad. They did the best they knew how and, and certainly didn't mean to hurt us in ways that they did. And we all have had our chances. Our chances. We've all had times when we've done the same with our children. Or at least something um, that felt similar to that. But let's use that. When our children are young... Let's build on that desire they have to, to give their heart to us and, and to, to follow us. Take full advantage of that. I have another book here this evening I'm going to be referring to a few times. This book is called Hero. Being the strong father your children need. This is written by a woman who is a medical doctor. She's been a medical doctor for, I think, over 35 years now. And she has seen literally thousands of children in her office. Not only attended to their medical needs, but counseled them through hard times with their parents and divorce and all kinds of things that she's gotten into as she she, uh, saw these children in her medical practice. And, and some of her, just her experiences, I find super fascinating. The things that she, the conclusions she's drawn just from seeing thousands of children in her office. And the premise of this book is that we as dads are our children's hero. We don't need to try to be. We are. What will we do with that? And she says this in the book, and this statement may be, may, be, may be a new concept to you, and some of you probably won't agree with it. Um, not everyone that has heard me say this before has agreed with it, but this is what she says after seeing thousands of children in her practice. There's a misconception that mothers are the center of a child's world. Too often we have the idea that fathers are optional. And that often the best thing for them to do is to just stay out of the way. I'll say it again. Moms are absolutely necessary, but so are dads. And to kids, it is the dad who is the center of the family. Maybe that's already how you thought. But that was a new concept to me. And as I studied, read this, and thought over this again today, I was deeply convicted myself because I've forgotten this. She says that every day, Your children are watching you as dad to see how you feel about life. How you feel about them. When they first see you in the morning, and when you come home from work, when you come in the door after work, your children, you, you don't notice it. We don't think about it, and they're not consciously thinking about it either. But when you come in the door, Dad, their feelers are saying, What kind of a mood is Dad in this evening? If Dad's in a good mood, we're going to have a good evening. If he's not, it's going to be a little rough. And some of you are probably like me, where you've ruined too many supper times with your sour mood. Or am I the only one? Even well, the two oldest of our children are girls and I have not yet been able to understand how two sisters can giggle so much over absolutely nothing. I still don't get it. But I try to be gracious anyway. (laughs) But sometimes it's just like it's not even funny. Why are you laughing? And you know, if we're in a sour mood, we, we kind of we, we that comes through to our children. And it changes their entire evening. Yes, they care the mood that you're in as well, but there's something a little bit more dominant about dad that affects them in a different way. It really matters to them. She says this, again from Meg Meeker. This is what she's observed. This is what from children telling her this. and, And her observing this in them. She says every child has three questions that they would like an answer about from their dad. Number one, Dad, what do you believe about me? Am I good? Am I smart? Am I stupid? Second, Dad, how do you feel about me? Am I lovable? Am I good? Do you like me? Or are you ashamed of me? And third one is, Dad, what are your hopes for me? Do you have hopes for me? Do I have a future, Dad? And again, your children probably don't consciously think these things, but in their heart, it's what they're feeling. And children usually answer those questions because you're probably, in many cases, you're not answering those questions with words. Maybe some of you are. Bless your heart if you are. If you sit down with your children and you, you tell them, what your hopes are for them and what you think of them. But many times, we don't even give that a thought. We just assume that they're going to know. And so how do they figure it out? Your body language. Your tone. But especially your body language. Just how you handle yourself with them. Like when they come talk to you, Do you keep doing what you're doing and try to answer their questions without looking at them? Or do you stop and and actually look at them? All those things, they, they read into that. And they answer these questions on their own. They're going to find the answers, whether you tell them or not. Meg Meeker herself, when she was in her 20s, her low 20s, she, her, her dad was a doctor, and she wanted to be a doctor as well. And she applied at college after college, and she, she kept being denied entry to medical school. It was just time and again, and she was to the point where she was giving up. And one day during that time, she, she walked into the house As she came in the door, walked into the house, she heard her dad on the telephone in his study. And he was saying this. Yes, our daughter Meg is going to go to medical school, and she's going to become a doctor. She didn't think she could do it. But by hearing her dad on the phone... He believed she was going to do it. Guess what? She became a medical doctor. Our influence is just that powerful. <clears throat> I'd like to read something from the book here. And she says this Behind closed doors at my office, kids tell me that they cry when dads yell at them because they desperately want dad to think they're wonderful. They tell me that they think of you, Dad, as the strongest, smartest man there is. They think of you as a great man. They think of you as a hero, their hero, because you are their dad. The one authority figure they want to please more than any other, not their mother, not their coach, not their teacher but you. Daughters have told me in one breath that their fathers drive them crazy, and in the next, that they feel safer when their fathers are home. Sons have told me they get terribly nervous when their fathers show up at their baseball or soccer games, but if those same fathers don't show up, they feel unloved. These are children in cognitive terms. Even 18-year-olds are children In cognitive terms, even 18 year olds are children. And they're confused about many things, but they are not confused about what you are to them or who you are to them. More than anything else, they want your approval. They're learning from you all the time from the moment they're born and for the rest of your life. They want to meet the standard you set for them because you will always be their dad. We all know children are mimics, but when it comes to dad, there's more to it than that. They study you every moment you're around, your body language and your tone of voice. They hang on your words. They need to know what you think and feel about them. Your good moments count, and so do your bad ones. For dads, this can be scary, but your influence for good is enormous. I'm told that professional athletes whose father was absent from the home when they were growing up, years later in their professional career in sports, they will instinctively look into the stands to see if dad is there. He's not been there for years. But automatically, they look for dad. Is he... Is he going to be here today to watch me? Children care that much, even as adults. And dads, if you want to hand off a fine young, to a young, fine young man, your daughter someday, a confident daughter who will love that man with all her being, be a real father to her today. You be a real dad, she'll know how to be a young lady. If you want your son to treat his girlfriend or wife with respect and honor as a young lady should be treated, model it to him by being a tender warrior, husband to your wife. I'd like to emphasize a little different part here. We as dads, we, we need to take an active role in our homes. And there's, there's a lot of things that, that our wives are so much better at. For example, like changing a diaper, right? Probably a few of you as dads are really good at that, and I became quite good at it because we had eight children, and you kind of had to learn. But it took me so much longer than her, and I got that stuff over everything. She did it just as slick as could be, and bundled up that little diaper and threw it away. And I'm like, "It's wash my hands. You know, it gets on everything. It's just..." So there's some things that the ladies are just better at. But the fact is, because of that, we as, we as dads can just kind of let the wife run the house. We can kind of just hand everything over to them. Just, can, you just run everything. And especially for men whose wife has a strong personality, maybe you're automatically or you're natural and more laid back, um, you're going to have to put forth more effort to be intentional in your home, to dig in and be active. <clears throat> this, this creates a hole in our home if we as men just sit back and just kind of dump the whole load on our wives. And yes, it's the old story. We as men, we go to work. Speaking of breaking up concrete, you do that for a day and come home, how many children do you want to take care of? You're tired, but your wife is tired as well. And I would like to talk to the ladies just a little bit here, too. Sometimes you're just going to need to back off and wait for him to get in gear. Probably far too many of us as men have some passiveness that we should get rid of. But help us with that by not just running over it, by just stopping and saying, Honey, this is up to you. I'm going to let it up to you. Just back off a little bit. Allow him to fail, just like you do with your children. In this hero book, there was uh, a few paragraphs about that that I I found challenging and helpful. The title of this section is A Father Doesn't Have to Be Perfect. Many fathers are intimidated by the responsibilities they fear if they have daughters that they know nothing about how to raise girls. With sons, they might feel handicapped if they themselves didn't have a good father as a role model. Many fathers are perfectionists. They feel that if they're excellent, that if they're not excellent, they're terrible. If they think they're terrible, they tend to withdraw from the family. Fathers have confided in me that when they first held their babies, they felt terrified, as well as incapable, inadequate, ill-equipped, and even stupid. Rather than ask for help, they relegate baby care to their wives because they don't want to risk failing as a father. Don't do this, dads. Here's why. Most mothers feel the same way. I was in medical school when our first child was born. My pediatrician told me that since I wanted to go into pediatrics, there was nothing he needed to tell me about child care. I almost burst into tears. Becoming a mother is an overwhelming experience, full of emotion, full of fear, and if you feel the heavy weight of responsibility as a dad, so does mom. What if I couldn't feed my daughter? I had never breastfed before. What if I dropped her, didn't hear her cry at night, forgot about her in the back seat of the car and she suffocated? What if she choked, stopped breathing, or got a high fever? I was almost a physician and I believed deep down that I really didn't have what it took to be a good mom. And my husband didn't feel any better. He was working all the time and worried about not bonding with her. So if you are afraid and feeling inadequate, welcome to the parents club. Most of us feel that way, even pediatricians. I'm sure that you, when you were first time parents, you remember that. That first night you brought the baby home or maybe you had the baby at home, the birth at home, but whatever the case is, that first night without someone watching over and and making sure the baby was okay and you're like, is it going to be all right? It's she or he is really tiny. She's fragile. And what if something happens and, and all those things? But God has given, yes, the ladies, but you as dads, He has given you the tools to be a dad. Don't need to be a perfect dad. Just be there and be a dad. So mothers, let dad be the dad. Both in his role as leader of the home and also in interacting with the children, especially the infants and the toddlers. The fact is that that children desperately need the interaction of a dad that that rough stuff, that rough housing, that you know, the throwing the children in the air stuff, all that risky stuff that men do. And ladies are like, honey, there's a reason why God put the desire into a dad to do that with his children. And that kind of interaction actually helps form good things in your children. So be a dad tussle with them. Do what dads do. Your children aren't going to love it, but it actually helps them develop, helps them in their development. Moving on to the final point, the attitude and the heart of a father. There's a scripture from Malachi 4, 5, and 6, and, and uh That scripture is in this book, along with some comments that I find quite interesting, thinking about the thing of the hearts of the fathers turning toward their children. This is a powerful concept. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day. This is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then some comments here in the book. While I do not understand all that passage means, I do believe it is a significant statement of God's intention that human history be viewed in familial terms, which means relating to or incurring in a family that men fathers are critical to the father's design and that there will be no peace on earth until men learn what it is to be a man, a man after God's heart. Gordon Dalby, a Christian author with a keen interest in men, takes it a step further. He says this, the biblical faith understands that healing is between fathers and children is not simply a psychological exercise to bring greater peace of mind. It is the essential prerequisite in fulfilling God's purpose on earth. When fathers are reconciled with sons and daughters, God's saving power is released among us. Conversely, when fathers and children remain at odds with one another, powers of destruction are beckoned. I believe there's a lot of truth in that. If we as dads miss our children to an extent that they don't feel safe, they don't feel loved, they've been hurt repeatedly. I don't mean making some mistakes. I've had to say sorry to my children many times because I was harsh. Or I made a bad call. I did something wrong. I don't mean not making mistakes, but just making those mistakes over and over again with no repentance whatsoever, just going on like that. Those children will finally say, That's it. I'm going somewhere else to find acceptance and love. And you can find a lot of examples of those children. You don't have to look very far, they're everywhere. Sometimes they're in our own homes. I think there's a powerful dynamic in play here. When a child knows that dad's heart is there for them, that child is unstoppable. You find a 20 year old young man or young lady that is just dynamic. They just have confidence. They have humility. And they're just ready to take on whatever God gives to them. It's likely, very likely, they have a dad that they know is right there. Very likely. It makes more difference than you can begin to imagine. And if I hadn't read some of these things, I wouldn't have imagined it either. But it's sobering to think about. That child is going to be a difference maker in this world. They are going to go and make things happen. If you as dad are there for them, you are behind them. And it's young ladies and young men both. But the opposite is also true. And I have, uh, I think, just one more story here. In the Tender Warrior book, this is a really, really sad story. Remember, he's, I didn't actually mention this, Stu Weber later became a pastor for many years. He says this. How we long for our fathers, how powerfully we are affected by our fathers, present or absent, negative or positive, and it isn't just boys who feel both the waves and undertow of that vast force. Listen to this heart-wrenching letter I received from a dear woman in our congregation. She says this. My dad was what I thought was a real man, He was the provider and worked hard for our physical needs. He had to go 150 miles away from home to find work, coming home only on weekends. As could be expected, I didn't know my dad very well. When I reached adolescence, I began to desire more than anything to win his approval. It became an all-consuming need. I went back and forth from being a tomboy to being feminine to try to get him to like me. I took up fishing and made myself pull worms apart to get slime underneath my fingernails so that I could bait my own hooks and we could go fishing. But he didn't have time to go fishing anymore. I started playing softball. and became the best pitcher in our school, but he never saw me play a game. I worked hard to get straight A's and was always in the honor roll. Never once did he say he was proud of me. One year, I was a cheerleader. He never came to a game. One year I was captain of the drill team. He never saw a performance. One weekend I tried to help him work on the car, but he was cross with me and I was in the way. I went into the house and made some cookies. He said I baked them too long. More and more I found myself retreating to my room on the weekends, sobbing violently, desperately wanting him to care. Not once did he comfort me. He never read to me. He never tucked me into bed. He never hugged me. He never kissed me. He never said, I love you. I got married and I had four kids. The last one was a boy, the only male descendant. We gave him his name. He wasn't impressed. Restless and dissatisfied with mothering, I went back to school. Somehow, without meaning to, I find myself, found myself studying civil engineering, the field of study closest to his profession. I worked as a surveyor last year, laying out lines just like the lines he had put in for years. I found myself, found myself asking, if he could see me now, he would be proud of me. I found myself thinking, what a power a father has over the direction of a daughter's life, good or bad, present or absent, he is going to have an influence that lasts a lifetime. I think a lot of fathers leave their daughters to the mothers to raise, and men do not do that. Your daughters need you just as much as the boys. It's in a different way. You're not teaching them to be tough and be strong and be a warrior like you are the boys. But they need you and they want you. They want your approval, your blessing. I think a man's influence isn't necessary. Okay, I'm going to start over that Sentence. I think a lot of fathers leave their daughters to the mothers to raise, thinking a man's influence isn't necessary for girls. I'm 37 years old now. I'm beginning to see how much I am still compelled by a deep craving within to gain the approval of this most significant man. You see, if my own father doesn't think I'm worthwhile, I must be worthless. If my own father can't accept me, then I am unacceptable. If my own father cannot love me, then I must be totally unlovable. If I'm truly worthless and unacceptable and unlovable, then God couldn't really love me. And certainly my dear husband, who is only human, couldn't really love me. I thank God that he's opening my eyes to these lies and showing me his truth. He has begun the process of healing, but the wounds are really deep. I feel the effects of this scarring will be with me while I remain on earth. That's the negative side of this whole thing. My own testimony in relation to our children is that after my heart was more tuned to the heart of my wife, my heart began to turn toward our children. And I don't know why. I don't understand it. But that's what happened. Ephesians 6.4 says, talking about fathers again in our relation to our children. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, similar. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And I believe there's a reason this is repeated in the Bible. There is a tendency for us as fathers... As much as we have the opportunity and the ability to encourage our children, we also somehow, because of our strength, we tend to have also too many opportunities to discourage them. Interesting fact is I have not not found one verse in the Bible where it tells mothers to love their children or where it says a mother should be gentle with her children. Not one verse. See, children assume that mom is going to always love them. She's just going to be there. That's just what moms do. Because of their nurturing characteristics, mothers are nurturers. That's just who they are. And so they know that mom is going to be there, but they don't assume that about you. They don't necessarily assume that you love them just because they assume that about mom. And so we need to be more intentional with that. Speaking of provoking to anger, how do we do that? I should have asked you more questions earlier. I'd like to ask you some now, and you're kind of you've been listening really long. How do we provoke our children to anger as fathers? Not listening. Not listening. Maybe having all the answers instead of listening? Is that kind of included in your thought too, possibly? <laughs> what else? Getting angry, Getting angry at them. That's very discouraging to our children. What else? Should I ask the ladies? I bet you they would have a list really fast. Being too busy in church work. Being too busy in church work. Okay? That can provoke our children and discourage them, is what you're saying. That's good. What else? Who said that? Okay. Domineering. So what do we mean by that? Just describe that a little bit more. Excessive control. Okay. Just trying to control everything. Excessive control. Yeah. Humiliating. Humiliating them. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Or someone else? How can we humiliate our children? Never quite measuring up. Never quite doing something right. Always something wrong with what they're doing. Yeah. Any others? You're doing good. You have more than I had written down. How about. Being I'm sorry? Not being engaged as a father. Okay, not being engaged. Even sitting at the supper table, just being grumpy and not really engaged in the discussion. And yeah, I've done it that way. Or in general, like you said, not being involved in their lives, just being disengaged. How about teasing? Yeah, well, I'm certainly not going to say that we never should tease our children, and yet it can be quickly overdone. And I think you would probably acknowledge that, Dave. It can be. Because ultimately, if it's done very much, they're going to assume there's a grain of truth, and it hurts eventually. It doesn't take real long. So I have three, teasing them too much, being inconsistent. I don't know if we exactly said that one here. Just today this is a rule and tomorrow I don't even care. And then the next day, boom, and so it's a rule again. That's tough for children. And being too harsh or having unreasonable rules. I think we kind of hit that here a little bit. Those things provoke our children to anger and they discourage them deeply. And in closing here, this is not to erase everything I just said. But for you as idealistic dads, if you know that you're very idealistic and you're just really trying to do this thing well, sometimes what you need more than anything else is just relax. Just enjoy your children. Sometimes we get into these, I don't know, spells or whatever you call it, where we just, everything just got to be just right. And, and we're, we're expecting so much of our children, we can't even enjoy them. So maybe every once in a while, just take a big breath when you walk into your house after work and say, tonight, I'm going to enjoy them, even if they're not perfect even if they're bouncing the balls and it's noisy and they're, we have five boys, so I mean, it's, whew, noise and balls flying and all kinds of things going on. Just love them. Enjoy them, love them. We're going to,